great weekend away with our uh, extended family. Um, it was 23 of us uh, down in pool in a sort of Christian hotel thing. It was really worked very well. They were really very good. A place called the Greenhouse, but they did lovely food and looked after us and swimming pool and things. And it was just lovely to see all the grandchildren playing together. We've got quite a range. We've got a 17-year-old at one end and a 3-year-old at the other. And uh, they were all fighting, and no, not fighting, like nasty fighting. I mean, happy fighting and rolling around and doing all sorts of things. It was great. We don't often get all get together. Uh, you saw the 17-year-old with a three-year-old riding on his back and stuff on. It's great fun. So we have had a lovely time away, but I missed being here. We both did. It's always, uh, uh, we always feel attention when you're away. I know we're away a lot. It'd be a little less so in the next few months, but it is good to be back and it's good to be able to share the word of God with you on the marks of Jesus, which is looking at Mark's gospel. And uh, we're looking this morning under the title Amazing Authority. Now this series is, the idea is that when Steve suggested it was that we look at Jesus' life as portrayed in the very clear, simple, direct way that Mark does. It's a great gospel, clear, simple and direct, probably Peter's account and it fits the character, and, it, and it's, it's good and punchy. So we're looking at it from there, but we also want to apply these marks of Jesus to our lives because uh, it's not just about a sort of academic exercise, or oh, what did Jesus do, wasn't he wonderful, which he was, but it's actually how does that apply to us? What do we now do in response? What does it mean to be a Christian almost in some ways, to be in Christ and have Christ in you? And if you're not a Christian this morning, really welcome. It's lovely to have you with us. You may have come before. I guess that's quite possible. I really want you to listen this morning because at one point I want to make it clear how you can also connect and be uh, linked in and part of of what's going on here of, of Jesus being in you and you in him. So we'll get there at some point this morning. But we're going to look at an incident early in Jesus' ministry. That means early in his public life. He was 30 years old, but he's out now on the streets. He's out now beginning to say what he's here to do, beginning to preach. And this is quite early on. And it's in Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 21 to 28. So it, uh, it, it's in Capernaum. They said, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue, in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So let's look at this under two parts. We're going to first of all talk about Jesus. So part one will be Jesus' amazing authority. And uh, let's just set the scene before we look, go any further. It was quite normal on a Sabbath day which was like their Sunday. It was quite normal on their worship day 
for the local elders of a, of a synagogue to invite a visiting rabbi or teacher to speak and to read and preach, read from the Bible, the Old Testament, which is what they would have had. And so one ordinary Sabbath day in Capernaum, an apparently very ordinary rabbi turned up. He had a very modest background. He'd been a carpenter for most of his life. And uh, he was just beginning to have a little bit of a name for himself. And he turned up at this synagogue in Capernaum. And as I said, they would welcome any Jewish rabbi. It was great to have someone to speak. Probably it was a relief in some ways. It was just a routine situation, a routine Sabbath. And they thought they'd got this ordinary guy from a modest background. But as soon as Jesus opened his mouth, it was clear this was anything but a routine occasion. And he was anything but an ordinary rabbi. Two amazing things happened pretty quickly, probably parallel almost. Jesus' teaching itself was over, uh, uh, overwhelming. It was different. It was totally different. A new teaching, something unlike they'd ever heard before, presented in a way they'd like they'd never heard before. And the other thing was, there was an immediate effect right there in the synagogue of his teaching. And we're going to just talk about that for a moment as we focus on Jesus. So the first thing of those two things is Jesus taught as one who had authority. You see, Jewish scribes, teachers of the law, they taught in a particular way. They basically explained the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, explained it in great detail and taught about rules. It was all about rules. How did you fulfill the law? How did you do this bit correctly? And of course, over the years, they'd added refinements to how you did. So how do you obey the Sabbath? How, what does it mean to only walk two miles? You know, intricate details about what you could pick up and couldn't pick up. You know, you remember, perhaps if you know your Gospels, there's a time when the disciples are told off for picking up heads of corn and, and wheat, rubbing them in their hands and just eating them as they walked along. A bit like eating nuts, I suppose, they walked along. And they were doing this on the Sabbath. Oh, you're reaping on the Sabbath because they'd worked out details of what you could and couldn't do. That's the sort of exciting thing they preached about. Uh, so it was basically about the law and details. Now, in order to give weight to what they said, almost every rabbi, I think probably everyone, would quote more important people to give weight. Now, we all do that a bit today. I do it a bit sometimes, I must admit. But they did it all the time. In other words, they said, well, I think, you know, you should only take one handful of wheat on a Sabbath. And Rabbi so-and-so, he says that, and he's much more important than me. So that was the style of the teaching. These are the rules. These are the experts. That's what they say. Now, actually, Jesus did none of that. He didn't approach it that way at all. Jesus spoke, first of all, with a unique personal authority that was quite mind-blowing for them. You can pick it up sometimes in Jesus' statements, truly, I say to you. So he would sometimes say, this is what has been said, truly, I say to you. And it had an authority which was not only in his style and the spirit of what he said, but was actually in the words. Because the way it was said was like God's statements. It was like he's talking like God talks, like you get it in the Old Testament. You know, you've heard this, now I'm saying this. Like as though the same voice is speaking, but saying it for now. And he knew exactly what he wanted to say, and he knew exactly what the scriptures meant. 
And he didn't refer to any human authority. He didn't back it up by quoting this rabbi or that rabbi. He just spoke out of his own authority. And it was clear that this was something very different. And you either heard it and received it or you rejected it and got very angry about it. Because that's the sort of, sort of mixed response that sometimes Jesus had. But it was powerful. And they describe it as a new teaching and with authority. Because Jesus was teaching about a new era that was starting with his arrival. The new covenant age had come. The thing we've been, you've been looking for for centuries is here. That was what he was saying. Actually, we can find out pretty well what he probably was saying. Particularly in these early phases. Because Luke, for example, we're going to look at that in a moment, gives us a more detailed account of what Jesus said at one similar early uh, preach in a synagogue. But even before we get to that, let's look at Mark 1, the same chapter, put it up on the screen, thanks, verses 14 and 15. Because that tells us the sort, no, the one before that, thank you, that tells us the sort of thing that Jesus was saying. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. This is what he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now that was very different. So he would stand up and say something like that. But in the synagogue, he probably added to it. So now we can put up the next one, thanks. Because in Luke, we get a detail of what he said. So let's look at it, because this is the sort of thing Jesus was saying. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This was proclamation. This was announcement. Then he rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, it's happening. Everything Isaiah's prophesied. The, The whole new kingdom, the new covenant, things Ezekiel, as Jeremiah... This is now here. The kingdom of God is arriving. It's a sort of sense of what Jesus said. With my arrival comes the kingdom of God. This was spine-tingling stuff. It's happening. It's arriving. A new era. The supreme thing you've been looking for all these ages. The Messiah, the kingdom, it's come. Salvation, deliverance, hope. I I wonder if it was as he was saying something like this that the demon screamed out. We'll get to the demon in a minute. But as, as Jesus was proclaiming this, you could feel it in the room. Something is changing. There, actually, there was a shift in the tectonic plates of the universe. I mean that as a metaphor, but I mean it almost literally. Something is changing. The stone cut out without hands, which Daniel saw, is, is arriving. Something is breaking in on earth. The kingdom of God is breaking in. It's the beginning of the end. We're still in it, the last days. And it's going on still. Isn't that exciting? But that was the moment when it all began to hit the public and Jesus announced what he was there to do. Every man and woman in that synagogue that day would have realised 
this was different. They would have sensed the authority of God that was on Jesus and that something extraordinary was happening. But as he was preaching, this next point came through. Jesus had authority over demons. As Jesus is teaching, literally all hell breaks out. I mean, that's what happens. Now, I want you to notice something. Where is Jesus? He's not in a brothel, is he? He's not in a drug den, is he? He's not in some seedy gangster's den in lower town Jerusalem, is he? He's in a synagogue. And it's interesting, that's where the demon is as well, in that poor man. And I think that man probably attended synagogue regularly. I doubt it was the first time he'd ever come to the synagogue. Do you? I guess he'd come many times and that man had sat there quite peaceful. Might have been a bit odd in some of his behaviour. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But he'd sat there quite peaceful and the teaching of those poor old rabbis had not disturbed a single thing. He may have nodded in agreement many a time. But that morning, something changed. The demon couldn't stay there. The demon couldn't stay. This is not religion. This is the power of God turning up. This is the saviour, the deliverer. And everything is beginning to shake as far as that demon's concerned. And it suddenly shrieked out in what I think is a sort of mixture of fear and defiance. Some of the commentators say, why did it say his name? Why did it so clearly declare who Jesus was? Well, I think... This theory has some validity, what I'm about to tell you. Demons in their stupidity and, and don't quite get what God is and who Jesus is. They have limits. And I think they sort of think by naming someone and saying they know who they are, they get power over someone. And it seems like the demon is terrified and it's sort of also trying to get one over on Jesus and trying to sort of grab back a bit of authority in this authority clash. There's a clash of kingdoms going on right there in the synagogue. And there's a sort of feebleness of like, well, I know who you are, that comes out. And and actually, in doing that, the demon spills the beans because he knows exactly who Jesus is and he says so. It's a clash. But of course, there's only one winner, bound to be, pretty quickly too. Jesus stays in total authority. He does not want the testimony of demons. He doesn't want what they say to be taken as the truth. And so he he shuts the demon up. He's not going to argue with it. He's not going to allow it to set the agenda. All of these things are important, by the way. He's not going to allow it to set the agenda. He's not going to deal with it on its terms. He's not going to get into discussion or to debate with it at all. In fact, the words in Greek that Jesus uses in verse 25, they are the same words a man uses talking to a dog. So in colloquial Greek, it's like he's talking to a dog, like people talk to dogs. Quiet, dog barking. Be quiet. Sit down. Now people talk, that's exactly how Jesus talks to the demon. And so when he says, he says literally be muzzled in, in Greek. So he says, be quiet. Come out of him. There is no doubt who is in control, is there? The creator has come to earth as a man. So he's a man walking in the power of God and there's just an absolute authority about Jesus. And he treats the demon as a man might treat 
a, a noisy or troublesome dog. So he just brings it to heel and orders it out. The demon shrieks. The man is, is shaken physically, but ultimately is healed and free. And that poor man is delivered right there and then. So Jesus' authority goes beyond just words. There are deeds. The words have with them power. And he has power and authority. Now that's the beginning of a very interesting day. Let's put up the next uh, slide. Mark 1, 32 to 34 tells us what went on that day. That evening, same day. After sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So this began a whole process. The place was buzzing. The Capernaum was buzzing. And all through that evening, Jesus actually went home and healed Peter's mother-in-law in between. So healing began. Massive healing. People were healed of all sorts of diseases, various diseases. And there were quite a number of demonized people who came and were delivered. So later on in Acts, we have what was Jesus was doing summed up. So let's put that one up. Acts 10.38. This sums up what Jesus is doing. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. That is a summary of what Jesus was doing on that occasion. As you read through the Gospels, quite often this sort of thing goes on. There's a lot of deliverance from demons, there's a lot of healing, there's a lot of power encounters. Let me ask you a question. I'm a real question, actually. Clearly, there were many demons at work in first century Palestine. Do you think that there are demons at work in 21st century Britain? You do, don't you? So do I. They haven't all retired. They haven't gone to sleep. They haven't read Richard Dawkins' book and thought, oh, we don't exist, so we better go away. They've done none of that. They are still around and will be till Jesus comes back and they're all dispensed with and put into Hades. And so actually, it's quite possible that a lot of demonic activity does still go on around us. And it's also interesting that it can go on and nobody knows anything about it, as I indicated in this synagogue. So the stuff there that nobody was really aware of until Jesus turned up. Now that might sound a little scary, but actually it's quite exciting. Because it means that Jesus can bring some serious change to lives. He can bring some serious liberation and deliverance. And that word doesn't just mean something like in a spooky movie. It means being delivered from bondage or slavery or, 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 or like being delivered from something oppressive or debt, a debt, if you like. It's a word you could use for lots of things. So that Jesus brought deliverance. Now, I think we need to briefly pause here because we need to know some Bible facts to help us in 21st century Britain. You see, probably 1st century Palestine, people didn't need persuading about demons. They didn't need to, they're probably very aware of it all. But but actually, I think, I'm not going to take a long time over this. I don't think I'm going to need to persuade. I don't like to give the devil too much 
uh, airtime. But I do actually think we need to say some things. If you look in the Bible, here are some quick Bible facts which I believe are timeless truths, okay? So there's nothing old-fashioned about them. This is just truth. There are such things as demons. They are sometimes called evil spirits or unclean spirits. They are ruled by Satan, but they are not created by Satan. They were created by God. They were created as angels. They are, in fact, fallen angels who joined Satan in his rebellion. They continue to be under the overall permissive will of God, but it appears that they have malevolent schemes and desires and devices that they have their own uh, little plans about. They have intelligence. So there is intelligence behind evil, other than human intelligence. Satan and his hordes, these demons, claim authority over the world of men and women when men and women are in rebellion against God. And the big moment for that was, of course, the fall recounted in Genesis. But actually, individuals can open themselves up through sometimes their own uh, foolish choices, but not always. Sometimes other things, evil things that happen to them. Satan is not nice. He exploits any human weakness. And if he can get a foothold, he will. And often human sin, rebellion, or excesses can open the door for a unique foothold. As much as he can, Satan and his demons like to blind human minds to the truth of God. That would be one of their big objects, to blind people to God. So that's why they sometimes lie low. In fact, I think usually lie low in our culture. They don't want you to know they're around because they want to keep you uh, oblivious, perhaps, to the whole supernatural world in our culture. And so their object isn't particularly just to exploit. It's to keep people blinded from God. As much as they are permitted to, they want to tempt, afflict, and attack God's people. And they don't like us. They hate us. But thank God, he who's in us is stronger than he who's in the world. Amen? Their main tools are probably temptation to sin and lies and deception. Because both of those things give them a handhold. They haven't inherently got that much power until we give it to them but we've given them loads over the years. They like to entrap and enslave men and women. In the Bible, we learn a whole load of things. We learn they can inspire counterfeit miracles, but the good news there is that there must be real miracles because nobody makes a counterfeit 19-pound note unless they're stupid. So a counterfeit thing means it's a real thing. So they do like to counterfeit miracles. They tempt people to sin. They oppress with fear. They can inflict some diseases, it seems, They can snatch away the word of God before it has a chance to root in you. So be careful. Don't just go out of here, find that the car has got a flat tire or find that somebody's crossing. You forget everything God said to you because that could have a demonic element to it. They love to snatch away the good seed. They like to sow weeds in amongst the good seed. They can appear as angels of light, as very attractive and as though they're good. But there's usually a very obvious deception in that. And they hunt like lions looking for prey. It is quite scary. There is a New Testament warning, and I want to hear, you want to hear this. There's a New Testament warning, there are New Testament warnings, plural, to Christians, which we should not take lightly. I think when you belong to Jesus, you are owned by him, and hopefully you are filled with the Spirit and walking in the spirit. So I don't think you can be possessed by the devil as a Christian. But, 
But there are some clear scriptural things we are told that we need to be soberly aware of. Christians, I'm talking to Christians, Christians can give the devil a foothold in their lives through unresolved anger, perhaps we'd describe it as bitterness. Unresolved anger and bitterness can give the devil a foothold in your life. Whatever that means, but it doesn't sound very nice. That's Ephesians 4, verses 26 to 27. Unforgiveness traps you in a demonic trap. Unforgiveness. If you don't resolve it, it becomes a trap of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 11. If a Christian gets involved knowingly and deliberately in some false religions, that can open them up to demonic activity. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 18 to 22. And rebellious and persistent sin can cause Satan to have an extra grip in your life. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5. So Christians can open themselves up to, rather foolishly, to Satan's grip. They're not possessed by Satan, they don't lose their salvation. But there's a grip in there that needs to be broken and you need to be set free from it. I could add a whole lot of things. I could add that the devil, for example, one more, fires fiery darts or firing fiery arrows flaming arrows at Christians and we need to defend ourselves with a shield of faith. I presume that is not a meaningless metaphor. So if we don't defend ourselves, I presume those arrows hit us and we have to get them pulled out again. So there are all sorts of things. Well, that's a picture which reminds us that Christians cannot be blasé about this enemy. Now that is scary, but the good news is is that Jesus came to share his authority with us. Amen? Let's move on quickly to part two. I won't be too long. Famous last words. I want to go on to Jesus shares his authority with us. Now, to do this, I want to build your faith with a really quick, and it will be quick, lightning flick of some scriptures. So you've got to be awake and not go asleep for me. Because I want you to kindle faith in yourself that we have got this authority shared. So we are not meant to be on the back foot when it comes to boldly proclaiming truth, speaking the word of God with courage and authority, or dealing with demonic activity in our lives, other people's lives, or in any situation. Let's look at a few things. Here's these are quick scriptures. First one, 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So Jesus sees that as the major thing he's come to do. Is that not good news? Yes. Then here's Jesus speaking, John 12. Now is the time for judgment. This is just before the cross. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That is Satan and his demons. They're the prince of this world. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is proclaiming, this is what I came to do. I came to be crucified, but I came to do it to release all who've been oppressed by the devil and to bring hope and help to all and to drive out the prince of this world. Let's look at Hebrews 2, please, quickly, which is sort of a backup to that. This is reinforcing that. Since the children, that's you and me, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus became a real person so that by his death, He might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
Is that good news? That's what Jesus came to do. He came to break the power of him. It's not just a a fear. There's a him behind the fear. To break the power of him who holds the power of death, devil, and free those who all their lives held in slavery to the fear of death. Hallelujah. Let's pick up the next one, please. Uh, Let's look at uh, 1 John again. Just summarizing. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Right, quickly, how do you get into this wonderful authority Jesus has? By putting faith in Jesus. By becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. That's how you share his authority. Make him Lord of your life, put faith in him, and his victory becomes your victory. And he becomes the captain of your salvation. And we'll see in a moment how directly he shares his authority with you. It says also there, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Talking about the world, because the one who is in you is greater than the one, that's the devil, who's in the world. When it comes to spiritual conflict, the one who is in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, knowing Jesus, Spirit of Christ in you, the one who is in you is greater than than the one who's in the world. Amen? That's important. Now, Jesus actually specifically talks to his disciples like this, Luke 10, the next one. He's talking to his disciples there and then in the the Gospels, but it's, it's sort of got application beyond that particular historic moment. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Get the important thing, the first thing first, that your name is written in heaven. The devil's not that important. But having got clear that you belong to him and your name is written in heaven, you might as well use the authority he's given you, mightn't you? You might as well be bold and clear that you can trample on snakes and scorpions. I think that's metaphoric rather than going out to the zoo and stamping on the first one you see. So it's a metaphorical picture of victory over demonic forces. It's wonderful. And finally, we need to look at just two, it's not quite finally in the sermon, but finally in this bit, we need to look at two times when Jesus specifically said, this authority I have is given to you, my followers. So quickly, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That one particularly carries that sense of authority in proclaiming the gospel, authority in speaking the word of God. Authority in bringing the teaching of Jesus to people and the liberation of the salvation that comes with the gospel. But then looks at the Mark's account of, a similar, of the similar time. Mark 16, he said to them, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. They will, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not harm them at all. These are 
Some of the examples of miracles that occurred in the years following. They will place their hands on people who are ill and they will get well. Basically, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? What we saw in Mark 1 at at that evening time, demons, healing, hope, proclamation of liberty to the captives, year of favour of God, everything we've read 20 minutes ago, Jesus shares with us. Amen? We bring the same message in the same authority, only it's his authority, not ours, in his name, and we expect to see the same results. Now, I haven't really time to fully expand this, but I had one last scripture, which in a moment I want to put up, because I want you to understand what, briefly, I'll have to be brief, what, what has happened when Jesus died and rose again. Let's just put up Colossians 2, 13 to 15, because this explains what happens. You see, before you become a Christian, and some of you might not be this morning, you, you've got loads of good things in your life, you're not all bad, but you have done things wrong. You have sinned. I sinned. We all sinned. And our sins and our rebellion have not only alienated us from God, which is the most serious thing, but linked with that, as I said earlier, they've given Satan a foothold in our lives. They've opened us up to his kingdom, the dominion of darkness. The thing Jesus did when he died on the cross that is so exciting, he did many things, but a big one, is he dealt with that sin problem. He legally removed the ground Satan had in your life. He legally removed it because he dealt with your sin, its judgment, and therefore the impending wrath of God. You are legally free before God. You have been forgiven. It's like having a massive debt that has been completely paid off. And that debt is gone. And if you think of the devil as like the debt collector, he's got nothing on you because he's got no debt to collect. Whatever way you like to think of it. Think of him as the jailer and you're in jail and you've been liberated and set free and justified. The jailer has no authority over you. If he were to try and bully you, he's just another civilian citizen and you ought to call the police to deal with him. You are no longer under his power, which you were legally when you were a criminal in prison. Do you get the idea? Now, I haven't read it all, but you can read it while I'm speaking. These scriptures, this scripture is telling you that when Jesus died, let's read a bit of it, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It's legal language which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers of authority. Now that is the satanic powers. They are disarmed. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You do not have to be afraid of the devil. And on top of that, the devil has no rights in your life if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But he is a liar. He's always been a deceiver and he loves to trap and entrap. He did it in the first days with Adam and Eve. He twisted God's words. He got them to disbelieve God, to, to rebel against God, and then he had substantial hold in their lives. Now, he has done that in the past with you. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But he's a con man. He won't go until you get it. 
You've got to get it, believe it, and apply it. Because he's a liar. He, he doesn't play by the Queensbury rules. He's not playing cricket. And say, so, oh, okay, if the umpire says I'm out, I'm out. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone is evil incarnate. And so actually to hold on when you don't have a right, he will do if you don't know your rights. Do you get it? So you have to know scripture. This is why I've even taken the time to put scriptures up. Because we need to know the truth, believe it, and declare it. And live in the good of it. Now, we're coming to the end. I've got two questions for you this morning to think about as we finish. My first question is this. Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Saviour? Now, many of you are going to say yes, and I love that. Hallelujah. But I want to, for a moment, speak to those of you who can't quite say yes. I'm not really, no, I'm not sure I can say that. I want to give you something to think about. Do you know, it's not enough to believe that Jesus existed. It's not enough to believe that he was the son of God even, that he claimed, what he, sorry, what he claimed was true. That is not enough. You say, how can you say that? Well, this demon in the synagogue at Capernaum, he understood all of that, didn't he? He knew exactly who Jesus was. In fact, at that time, he seems to have a far better grasp of who Jesus was than most human beings, including the early disciples. The person in the room with the most, the, the being in the room with the most understanding of who Jesus is, is the demon. Isn't that right? But that demon is not saved. Why is that? Because faith, living faith, is not intellectually agreeing with something. It's committing your life to it. It's believing with your heart. It's believing with your heart. Martin Luther said this, simple phrase, simple statement. Listen to it carefully. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. Now, I quite like that because I used to teach English a bit. Not, not very good at it, really. The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. What does that mean? It means Jesus needs to be my saviour, my Lord, my God. That's what makes you a Christian. It's not just knowing the truth about Jesus. And we do try to persuade you of that because you've got to get the truth first. But then you've got to believe it and commit yourself. Say, he's my Lord. He's my saviour. Can I encourage you? Do that this morning. Really do it. Take the step out from just thinking, hesitating, thinking, yeah, I'm fairly persuaded. It's pretty good. I've been to the Alpha. I've come along here and I've heard preaching. I think there's probably something in it. I think there's a lot in it. Yeah, but that won't save you. The demon probably knew more than you. You need to say, Jesus, be my Lord and my Saviour. Jesus, come into my life. Take away my sin. Forgive me. Make me new. Make me one of your new creations. Can you do that this morning? I'm going to just stop for a moment and we're just going to pray. And if you want to pray a prayer like I've prayed yourself, do it right now. Lord, I just pray that you would make 
yourself real to any dear friend who hasn't yet seen you. I pray in the name of Jesus that any blindness will be lifted now in Jesus' name. Any mental blindness that Satan has brought in, a veil he's put over their eyes, in Jesus' name, go, be lifted. And I pray, Lord, that your peace and your grace will enter. Holy Spirit, come. Make yourself known to this dear friend. May they come to know you as their Lord, their Saviour, their friend this morning. I'm just going to pause and I want you to pray your own prayer if you're in that situation. And then please, afterwards, tell someone about it. Thank you, Lord. Second question is this. Does something disturb you deeply this morning as I speak? Maybe it's not about me and what I've said, but maybe there's something you think, oh, to be honest with you, I wonder if that is a thing that's beyond me. I wonder if that's something that I can't control. Maybe it's a life-controlling habit. Maybe it is a paralyzing fear. Maybe it's a deep, deep, Hurt that colours everything you do because it may have been done to you or your reaction to something and it just traumatised you and, and really you can never get away from it. It's like a, like a, a sort of moth round a light. Everything, even when you try, you, you end up in that same cycle of, of repeating yourself. There are things like that in our lives and you may feel, as I've spoken this morning, even an oppressive feeling you may feel, that seemed, I've always felt it might be more than me. It might be more than just my psychology or a natural weakness or a physical illness or, or just, you know, other people's problem. I want to tell you this morning that I believe God wants to set some people in this room free from some hold Satan's got in their lives. Now, I'm not looking for dramatics. Jesus didn't want dramatics. You saw that. And I'm not looking for people to shout out while I preach. I wouldn't be too offended if they did, but I'm not looking for it. Sometimes that's an unhelpful distraction, actually. And I think Jesus saw it as largely a malevolent distraction, trying to get one over on him. So he didn't really want it. He told the demons to stay quiet. But he didn't tell them to stay in the people. He told them to get out of the people. The important thing was to see people free from their influence. Let's stand together and let the band come up as we finish. And I, I want you to know that what I'm preaching about is not, it's not explanation of the Bible. It's got to be experience in our lives. That we can be free. I deeply, firmly believe that if you come to know Jesus, you should be and are entitled to be free from every hold of sin and Satan in your life. Sin I put in there deliberately as well because sometimes it's a bit hard to work out. Is it just me or not? But people have, as Christians, absolutely habitual sins. They still cannot get free of. And some of them have got a power beyond your power. You may have unwisely opened up to it. That's not, we're not here to cast blame. I want you to be free. I want you to be free. 
You may have done one of those things the Corinthians did, something silly as Christians. Went and started worshipping in a pagan temple. I doubt many of you did that, but you might have done. And, and, and Paul says, what are you doing? He's got a table of demons. You know, you'll get yourself into problems. And, and, and actually, we just need to be free. We just need to be free. So I'm going to encourage you in a moment, we'll worship for a minute, if you want prayer for anything, and I, I come against right now, in the name of Jesus, I come against a spirit of pride in people's lives that says, I dare not be prayed for. I dare not be seen to be prayed for. I come against pride, and I release us to be real and natural. I release us from fear of man, fear of man and woman, fear of people. I release you from fear of people in Jesus' name. I want to tell you, I am not talking about, I'm not talking about something, I'm talking about ordinary things. I'm not talking about something gross. I'm talking about ordinary things that plague you. I never, we are simply going to pray in the name of Jesus. That's what we're going to do. I'm not asking people to pray. I'm not asking to counsel you. I'm not asking people to go into long uh, sort of expirations of your life. Just what Jesus did. Let's say, in the name of Jesus, be free. Amen? But I don't think it's enough only to do it as a general prayer. I just don't feel that in my spirit. Phil, you need to come forward and people to pray with you. That's all I'm asking to do is pray with you. By the way, to those praying, unless the Holy Spirit puts something in your mind, be careful. I am not asking you to counsel or get into detail. I just want you to pray. I just want you to do what Jesus did. In Jesus' name, be free.